At QUT, we believe that teachers do more than build understanding. They build confidence, resilience. They help students to make sense of the real world. So shouldn't we give teachers all the support they need? We think so. If you feel the same way, this podcast is for you. Welcome to QUT Podclass. Every step that you take forward, you're actually changing a child's life. You're taking people with you. This idea of the silent classroom is also a little bit of a myth and could be getting in the way. That they have very little time to just take a breath, sit down and think, what, where do I want to go? What do I want to do with my career? It's amazing how many fresh ideas you can have when you can ask your question of the entire world. I've given it all I've got. I am exhausted and I need a break. I think that is part of it. She turned it around because she invested in herself. <laughs> Hello and welcome. I'm Madonna King and this is QUT Podcast. Could teaching toddlers good self-control be a game changer for how they learn? And could music be the key to unlocking strong organisational skills and moulding the behaviour of our students even through their teenage years? My guest is Dr. Kate Williams and teachers and teaching is our focus. Kate, hello. Hello. So what's your position at QUT? I'm a senior research fellow in the School of Early Childhood and Inclusive Education. And you specialise, in a sense, in self-regulation. I do, yes. What does that mean? Well, I guess a more lay term would be something like self-control. So it's the way that we all control our own emotions and our thinking and our attention and also our behaviour in ways that allow us to be sort of well-functioning human beings or when we're thinking about children in education settings, the way they control themselves in a way that allows them to learn. So are there different types of self-regulation? Yes, there's. it's a really big umbrella term and there's lots of things that come under it. But I think the three main things that are good to think about are emotional regulation, first and foremost. So, you know, we all get upset sometimes, angry, frustrated, all sorts of emotions that are that are reasonable and realistic. But when we are able to regulate those, it means we're able to sort of calm ourselves in a reasonable period of time and then be back open to, to learning or different ways of thinking. So that's emotional regulation. And the second one would be attentional regulation. So that's the ways where children know where to put their attention. Do they do they pay attention to the teacher speaking in front of the class or to the jiggling peer next to them? So even as a, as a toddler, they're focused. Exactly, and they're focused. And, and part of that is also their persistence to tasks. So when they do pay attention to something, maybe they're trying to work out a puzzle or how a toy works, can they stick with it for quite a time, even when it gets tricky, to try and overcome some of those challenges? And that's that's really important for young children to develop. And then the third area of self-regulation that's really useful to think about is something we'd call inhibition, or you might think of it like impulse control. So that's when children who um, sort of might be desperate to yell out an answer in class or hit out at somebody when they're frustrated, they can control that sort of um, instinct and instead do the more preferred socially acceptable <laughs> response. So we'll, we'll explore all of those, but, but you're tying them to education in a sense and how a child learns. How much do you see strong self-regulation as a ticket to learning? 
It's absolutely fundamental. Um, we know that children with better self-regulation skills before they enter school tend to do much better in the early years. They have a faster learning trajectory and uh, not only for learning, but also for well-being. So we know children who have better early childhood self-regulation skills have much fewer risks, risky behaviours in adolescence. When you say a child might lack self-regulation, is it a child we might have previously called naughty? I guess so, yes. So we would have thought about these children as um, perhaps sometimes sort of intentionally bucking the system. And no doubt there's some some children who still do push the boundaries um, even uh, when they know how to self-regulate. But I think in early childhood, we're starting to turn the language around, particularly around to looking at children's developing self-regulation skills rather than talking about poor behaviour. So looking at a child's self-regulation levels, can we determine their likely future outcome or is that a big jump? It's a big leap because lots of things can happen on that trajectory. But strong self-regulation skills in early childhood are going to be a really strong protective factor. We know that for a fact. So they're certainly not going to do any harm building those skills. How quickly does the learning gap widen, let's say, in early in prep, if your child has good self-regulation skills and mine doesn't? It becomes apparent quite early. Um, PrEP is not too late to develop these skills. It is never too late to develop these skills. However, the child who enters PrEP with poorer self-regulation and might struggle to know where to put their attention, might struggle with their emotion regulation, without the right supports, they will quite quickly start to fall behind with the learning experiences. At a shopping centre today, how might I spot a child with poor self-regulation? So a child in a shopping centre might be somebody who's pulling a lot of things off the shelves, even when their parent asks them not to, they don't seem to be able to stop. They could be the tantruming child on the floor. I mean, tantrums are a normal part of development. Mm. They will happen at two and three years. If you're seeing them in a public space at seven, eight, nine years, we'd be quite worried about that child's self-regulation skills. Um, Those sorts of things, not able to control their sort of motor responses, their emotional responses. Is this bad parenting or what contributes to its underdevelopment? Well, uh, look, I'm a parent myself and I know how hard that job is. I would never blame parents for anything. I think parenting is a really difficult gig. Um, there's but lots it must play a part. It does play, it does play a part, absolutely. The research shows that um, I guess one of the, some of the negative things that can impact on children's self-regulation uh, development around early parenting are if parents struggle with self-regulation themselves. So when we talk about really angry, hostile, aggressive kind of styles of parenting, that's really a parent struggling with their own emotional regulation. And we know this impacts quite significantly on children. What about permissive parenting? You can do what you like, love. Yes, we've. I've got a really interesting story about that, actually. There was a young person who arrived at a kindy a couple of years ago and um, really struggled to fit in with the group routines. And the teacher uh, sort of worked on this for some time, but the child wouldn't sit at group time. The child yelled and called out. The child had a lot of trouble making friends um, because was sometimes a bit uh, rough and dismissive with peers. 
And when the teacher spoke to the parent, um, which is a great thing to do, of course, um, the parents said, well, my, you know, my child has never had poor behaviour outside of kindy. Never, ever. It is this kindy that is making him <laughs> naughty. And this is astonishing to think, of course, but but what is... Not a child I know. (laughs) That's right. But what's happened there, um, I got to know this context over time, and what I noticed was that this parent had quite a permissive parenting style. So until that child arrived at kindy, they hadn't done any other childcare experiences. Until that day arriving at kindy, that child's world um, was led by that child. So the parent worked everything around the child. You know, they ate when and what they wanted. They didn't really have to fit in with anybody else's routines. And of course, when this child turns up to kindy, where they're not the only one that has to be catered to, they need to fit in with group routines. And this is a bit of a shock to the system. So parenting might be one one reason, but certainly not the only one, I presume, you know, ADHD or or autism? Absolutely. High anxiety? Yes. So there's a lot of underlying neurological differences or even developmental differences. So children who struggle to communicate, for example, children with ADHD, ASD, other developmental differences are all going to probably struggle with self-regulation. Boy, this makes it difficult for a teacher. What percentage of a class in early childhood might have an underdeveloped self-regulation? We're thinking around 30% at this stage. One in three. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that's come from our own Australian research where we looked at population data and found around 30% of children with below average attentional and emotional regulation skills. And it's also coming from the field. So that's about the number of calls that early childhood peak service providers field from teachers saying, we need some extra support with these children. Shouldn't, should we be listening more to teachers here because we put so much effort into to getting our kids to study at, at the end of school? If we could address this early on, could we see a different educational path for, for that 30% of children? Absolutely. It's absolutely key. I mean, if I had my way, all kind of early early childhood curriculum would mostly be about self-regulation and language development. They are the two key tickets to future learning. And I think, you know, we are doing great work in that space. So in Australia, the prior to school curriculum is very much focused on these things and should remain so. But I think in the early years of school, we also need to maintain that focus. And I know music plays a big part in that, and we'll come to that in just a moment. But first, your research shows how crucial sleep is here. Just explain that to me. Sleep is a big part of children learning how to self-regulate. It is both impacted on by their daytime self-regulation skills, but also impacts on their daytime behaviour. So we all know about the child who's sort of gone to bed late the night before, not slept in, and is a bit ratty and difficult to manage the next day. But it goes beyond this. It's actually, there are long-term consequences for um, both limited sleep hours, but what I'm more interested in is the is the behaviours around sleep. So we know that children by five years of age who can put themselves to sleep, they don't need support, They, when they wake in the night, which we all do, it's normal, they can sort of roll over and get themselves back to sleep and they wake up relatively um, refreshed. 
Children who can do that by five independently tend to have much stronger self-regulation skills, a better transition to school, and the teachers find them sort of more attentive um, and less emotionally reactive. I can't imagine a five-year-old putting themselves back to sleep at two o'clock. Most of them would run in and climb into bed with mum and dad. Is that my children or is there, is there a big proportion of the population? You're not alone. You've probably got about, again, 30%. Um, according to our research, you know, maybe more, maybe less. That was just one study. So it's not uncommon. It's certainly not uncommon. But uh, I guess we've found through sleep intervention research and other research that if we can address some of those independent sleep behaviours, we're going to get a better quality of sleep and a better daytime outcomes for children. So what's the difference at school entry between a child who is in a good sleep routine and one who's not when it comes to learning? Well, we found that children who have some poor sleep behaviours that their parents report, teachers, independently of knowing anything about the children's sleep, report those children to be more hyperactive when they have poor sleep routines um, and more emotionally reactive during the day. And the problem with those two things is that when your system is caught up with emotion um, and also sort of hyperactivity type behaviours, you are not really open to the learning opportunities that are around you. But wow, this is outside a teacher's domain, isn't Mm. it? You know, is their job to talk to parents or to deal with the child during the school hours? It's a really interesting and difficult question. I think teachers have a lot to do. The last thing they want to be doing is addressing children's sleep. They're, yeah. not, they're not at home when the children are sleeping. and reading them a story at night. Exactly, exactly right. Um, but I think if um, in the prior to school setting, there, are, I think there is an opportunity for teachers to support parent education around sleep, yes. to have conversations about sleep. I mean, I know a lot of children whose parents would say would say to me, you know, I soothe my child to sleep every night. Uh, they wake in the night and I go and lie with them and this is not a problem for us. This is the way I choose to parent. And I say, that's fantastic. That's totally fine. Unless you are seeing, when parents come to me and see that are saying, my child just can't seem to concentrate in the daytime, I can't manage their behaviour, their teacher is complaining to me that they're difficult in class, well, in that instance, maybe have a look at the sleep. At what age can you teach a child self-regulation? How early? Well, it begins, in fact, as soon as children begin to move. So the developmental course of self-regulation growth is that we're all born completely other regulated. So we talk about other regulated to co-regulated to self-regulated. And other regulated as infants means that, you know, obviously we can't feed ourselves, we can't clothe ourselves, we cannot put ourselves to sleep, in fact, as infants. We need soothing and help. But as soon as infants start to discover their body, they do things like thumb sucking, reaching out to stroke a favourite toy. Once they're sitting and crawling, they start crawling toward comfort areas or comfort people. They're actually beginning to learn Um, co-regulation, which is the help of another, which then gradually leads to self-regulation. Can all toddlers learn self-regulation? Yes, all people can. In fact, you know, you and I are still learning self-regulation now at our age. I suspect so. (laughs) I think my husband might be too. (laughs) Now, you're a registered music therapist and you've conducted this research showing the link between music and self-regulation. What's the headline here? What does it show? 
Well, it's fascinating. My research mostly focuses on uh, people's ability to maintain a rhythm or a beat, so how rhythmically we can align ourselves with music. And this is seems to provide a, a window to the brain. So, for example, we know that children with ADHD struggle with moving rhythmically to a beat and children with better self-regulation tend to be a bit more rhythmic in their movements. So what you're saying is there is a concrete link between those toddlers struggling with rhythmic skills and those with poor self-regulation? There seems to be. This is cutting-edge international research, but more and more is coming out. And the other piece of the puzzle and the, the clue that we get on this here is that when we provide formal music training to people, you can scan any musician's brain and you will find the areas for language and auditory processing, but also self-regulation are better connected and better grown in and in professional musicians. Is that the science behind the research? Yes. So at what point can music make a difference? How early? Very early. So I my, my work focus, focuses on active music engagement. It's not just about listening to music, which is great too, and I would encourage everyone to do that. But as soon as you can be moving with your child, which is infancy, you can rock rhythmically, um, with children. We know, for example, that uh, infants and toddlers who are rocked rhythmically um, by their mother or father regularly every day, after that experience, they tend to show a bit more social skills and empathy with other people. Wow. And that's probably going to also link into parts of the brain for self-regulation. You're talking about rhythmic music. Mm. Are we talking about things like, you know, heads and shoulders, knees and toes, or the animals going to... What would be the best couple of songs or tunes that a parent might use in those early years that could help? That's a tricky question. I think... Um, Things that involve the body, so heads and shoulders, knees and toes. But you know what? Then as children get used to that, you can start tricking them and you can ask them to do it backwards. And this really tricks their self-regulation brain into um, into gear. Can you do it backwards? Well, you sing it forwards and you do the actions backwards. Wow. So heads and shoulders, knees and toes, starting with the hands on the toes. I think I struggle with that. <laughs> you sort of struggle with it after a late night, that's for sure. <laughs> Um, things like that, open, shut them, open, shut them, very rhythmic. Um, we can just sing, you know, tapping tapping our knees and clapping our hands. You can sing good morning to children. Teachers do this all the time. And um, parents, I've often heard them doing it, trying to get out of the house, you know, let so much to the car, much to the car, much to the car. And it sort of motivates children and gets a little bit of rhythmic movement into their life. So even singing instructions as you have a toddler can help. Absolutely. Yep. Clean up songs. Everybody needs a good clean up song in their in their toolkit. <laughs> All right. What is yours? Just make it up. Just make it up. You know, this is the way we pack away, pack away, pack away. Does, did that help your children become cleaner? Oh, I'm not sure they're cleaner, but it helped us get through the packing up um, right. with less arguments. <laughs> I might try that tonight. And Kate, how important then is it for teachers to make sure they do include this in, in prep in year one and year two? Look, I would love, my mission is to, for this to be a regular part of the day, perhaps even the first part of the day. We, we've done some work uh, in the last few years 
with introducing more rhythmic, um, a rhythmic movement session um, into early childhood classrooms. And the teachers told us when they did that at the start of the day, they really found their students much more ready to learn for the rest of the day. And they used words like much more settled. And if we don't get our dose of rhythmic movement now, our day is not as great. So it almost had an immediate effect. That's what they told us. We've talked about the importance of music and the importance of sleep early on in self-regulation. What about uh, play-based learning? How important is that? Oh, play is so incredibly important for early childhood development in general, but particularly self-regulation. So if you and I are in a pretend play game, you know, maybe you're the vet and I'm the pussycat, what we're having to do as a young child in that situation is engage so many different parts of regulation, okay? So I have to stay in character. I have to use my working memory to remember who all the characters are, that you're the vet and I'm the cat. I have to refrain from the impulse um, to step out of my role as the cat and, and suddenly be a dog or something else. So I have to stay in character and that takes impulse control. It also takes emotional control when, when you as the vet, um, you know, I may be bossing me around as the cat and I'm getting a bit frustrated with that. How do I deal with those emotions? So it's quite incredible what little brains are doing during pretend play. It's really important. Is that challenging for some parents? If your child comes home from kindy and they've played being a cat and being a dog but not done the alphabet, I can imagine some parents would think whether that time or money was well spent. I think parents might, yes, but I think we need to change the conversation here because without those self-regulation skills that do develop through creativity and through play and through relationship building, that is the most key and important thing young children can have to put support their self-regulation. You know, ongoing learning won't support and won't, won't happen. We, we do see kids in high school who are academically quite brilliant, but self-regulatory wise still struggle. And that means that important things in life like peer relationships, romantic relationships, dealing with peer pressure and bullying, they're still going to be difficult no matter how many A pluses one gets. It would be ideal to include music in play-based education at the kindy level. Absolutely. Or childcare even. Yes. And you see, children are quite musical beings. So when I was in my music therapy training degree many, many years ago, we had to go out and video uh, young children just in their natural play and analyse their musical behaviours. And these are children without any music training or any adults around them. And they sing and they move rhythmically and they clap and they tap and they self-talk. And all of these things are are behaviours that are supported their self-regulation skills. So encouraging rather than stifling those is really important. And you're being a little bit humble on your research. You're actually involved in a longitudinal study of almost 5,000 children. Yes, well, that's the longitudinal study of Australian children. And that's where a lot of our understandings about self-regulation development and sleep development in uh, young children have been able to be developed in Australia over the last few years. And there's also um, some interesting findings we've had there about music in that study as well. So parents were asked when children were toddlers, about two to three years you know, how often in the week they did these kinds of nursery rhyme games or dancing or clapping games with their children. And what we found was that parents who did that more at two to three years had children two years later with better attentional regulation. 
So, Kate, we're all told to read to our children, you know, from the moment they're born or in utero, uh, read a book as they go to sleep. Should we flip that and we should be playing rhythmic music as they go to sleep or, or as their homework? Let's not flip it. Let's add on. Book reading is so important. We've got so much evidence for that. Keep doing that. Add on maybe some rhythmic movement activities. And in fact, you know, you can combine the two. As every early childhood teacher knows, there are fantastic books that are books of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star and the extra verses. Heads, shoulders, knees and toes and the extra verses. I was hoping you'd sing it again. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you've actually uh, pioneered a PD program using music as an early intervention. How did that actually come about? It came about because I was a registered music therapist working in the field for about eight years, working with pretty vulnerable families nationally, um, young children prior to school and their parents, and we used group music therapy to support developing parent and child relationships. And I did notice also that in group music um, sessions, children who might be quite um, dysregulated in other settings, often because of experiences of trauma when they were young, um, were able to find a way to regulate themselves in in music sessions. And then when I completed my PhD, I didn't look at music at all. I sort of went down a different path and I looked at that that longitudinal uh, study of Australian children data, 5,000 children, and looked at self-regulation development over time. So then it was time after that to bring the two paths of my career together. And internationally, there was sort of this vibe or this sense going on that there's something happening Um, called the Musician Advantage, when we look at professionally trained musicians and their better brain architecture. And I thought, well, actually, we need to bring this Musician Advantage to very young children who struggle with self-regulation the most. And we need to do it before school. And we need to do it in a really cost-effective way where teachers can implement it. You do not need professionally trained music teachers or expensive instruments to do it. And where does a teacher find details of that PD program? Um, Through the QUT Education PD website. How long does it take a child to actually learn self-regulation? A lifetime, I would say. But, but, but in a way, of course, we're always trying to better ourselves. But a, a teacher, I'm thinking of, of all these teachers listening and, and they've got so much on their plate. And often as parents, we, we put more and more onto our classroom teachers. Mm. If they have a child who arrives without much self-regulation, over a period of a term, can they see a real difference if they, they walk a particular path? Absolutely, yes. These things do take time, but I think teachers are really good actually at um, making early learning goals for those kinds of children to be about self-regulation because learning goals around literacy and numeracy aren't really going to be that achievable till we can have that child ready to learn. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So when a child begins prep, what does good self-regulation look like? 
So a child with great self-regulation in prep will um, be able to sit at group time, not for too long. I mean, we, we really need to remember about age-appropriate expectations yeah. for self-regulation. So we're not going to expect a two-year-old to sit for, you know, a 40-minute group session, and we're not going to expect a prep child to sit for a huge amount of time either. But for um, a group, a, a well-regulated child will sit during group time, will know where to put their attention on, on the teacher, will be able to resist some of the distractions that are around the room. They'll also be able to independently manage um, their own belongings and materials. They'll show an interest in learning and they'll follow at least one step and potentially two or three step instructions. For a teacher ahead of learning, this is actually even a class management issue. It does become a classroom management issue and I think understanding where children are in their pathway of developing self-regulation can really help teachers do that. I, I want to talk to you about what teachers can do, but first of all, all, let's go to parents. If parents want to work on this before their child is at school, can you give me three concrete steps that they could take? Sure. Well, we've already talked about the reading to children, which will be great for or all of their development. Um, parenting in a way that tries to be as self-regulated for parents as possible is really important. And it's hard every day to be the calm, cool um, parent. Oh, yeah. But it, <laughs> it's really um, worth, the, worth the effort and trying to do that and perhaps getting some support with that. So if parents are finding themselves sort of emotionally dysregulated themselves and overwhelmed on a regular basis, really getting some uh, family, friend, partner, or even professional support with that so that parents can be the, the stronger, wiser, kinder, more regulated person in the house um, at all times or, or as, as most of the time as possible is really important. Um, the rhythm and the movement, dance with your child, have fun with your child, um, but also um, co-regulate. So children will need help in the prior to schools with their regulation. So for some children, that'll be a big bear hug. Um, so for some children, it'll be a rub on the back. For other children, it can be really about trying to gradually get them to independently manage their sleep and their emotions. Getting sleep right before school can be a really big ticket. So can we recap on those? Are you saying read to your child, role model behaviour, co-regulate mm -hmm. and focus on sleep. Yes. All right. So that's for a parent. Mm -hmm. What about teachers? They are in early education. What can they do? Are there concrete steps they can take to help children in their class self-regulate? Yes. So I would uh, suggest being, being my passion is rhythm and movement. I would suggest um, trying to get some body percussion and rhythmic movement sessions happening as a learning warm-up at the start of the day. I would also suggest that uh, teachers create learning goals with and for students and parents that are focused on self-regulation in the first couple of terms of the year. So that's about supporting children to be self-organised and having the strategies to do so. And using language and modelling about self-regulation for teachers can be really important. So giving children the language to describe their emotions and talking about the strategies that you can use when you're 
you're upset or frustrated, teachers also may need to co-regulate and they do some of that work just beautifully. Can this be moulded into the curriculum so it's included in maths or, or at big lunch, for example? Absolutely. So when teachers um, are working with students, for example, on a maths problem, they could be articulating what's going through their head, not just in relation to the maths, but things like, gee, this is getting really tricky. I think I'm going to have to really concentrate here. I'm going to stick with it, even though it's really hard. So that self-talk, we actually know that children who self-talk more tend to develop their self-regulation skills quicker. So this idea of the silent class classroom is also a little bit of a myth and could be getting in the way. So encouraging self-talk about the not just the, the content, but what's going through students' heads, heads as they try and concentrate. When we video children doing their homework independently, it's just beautiful to see some of the ways that children do this. And it would be nice if that was encouraged in classrooms. Are teachers sufficiently supported here or what else needs to be done to support them? I think schools, many schools have a focus on the whole child and social emotional development of which self-regulation is one. Many schools are using age-appropriate pedagogies or positive education um, approaches that come from positive psychology. All of these types of curriculum-based approaches do actually focus on self-regulation and they do give teachers the tools and support um, to do this. Finding room in the day and the curriculum can be difficult, but I do think that it can be embedded. I do think there is largely good support for this. Um, and that we we need to continue to support teachers to do this. I'm so jealous of all your knowledge in this area. Are your children beautifully (laughs) self-regulated? No, no, I wouldn't say that at all. A work in motion. A work in progress. I mean, I think they, they do very well at school, and this is a common experience for parents and teachers, is that uh, children will use their self-regulation skills in the context that matters most. So it's not uncommon for children to be quite well self-regulated at school and in other settings, and then they let it all hang out at home. And that's where they have the emotion and they have yes. the difficulty reining it in. And this is a smart move by by children to do this because obviously at home, this is where they're going to receive the unconditional love, love and respect. Um, so I think uh, it's really good, for, I think, for teachers to understand that as well. That I mean, there's nothing quite like... I remember one day dropping off my my eldest to kindy many, many, many years ago and sort of looking a bit frayed, I think, and saying to the teacher, oh, gee, you know, we had a rough morning. I hope he's okay for you today. And the teacher um, sort of was a bit, oh, gosh, well, that's surprising because he's such a beautiful child in this kindy. And and I understood that and I got that. Yeah. There's nothing like that to sort of make you feel like a bit like, oh gee, what am I doing wrong at home? But but in reality, this is this is what children do. They do it they do it smart and wise, um, and then and then gradually it'll become embedded in all parts of their life. Well, I've written a couple of books on teenage girls, and I'm wondering some of the issues facing them in terms of their well being. Could that be as a result of an immature self regulation? Yes, in fact, uh, we did a study just last year where we looked at children's self-regulation skills at four to five years and across that transition to school, so up to about six and seven years. And um, then we 
we looked at these children again at 14 to 15 years, and in fact, children with poorer self-regulation at four years were twice as likely to be engaging in risky teenage behaviours like self-harm, suicidal ideation, school truancy, smoking, alcohol use. So in fact, getting it right and trying to support this in early childhood, this self-regulation growth is incredibly important. So are our wellbeing programs that are then focused at teenage behaviour, do they include enough on self-regulation or should we re-look at that? I think most of them do. Um, it's It can be difficult work engaging teenagers in this kind yeah. of work. And the tricky part about it is, I think, is that a lot of our attention is often on children who, or, or young people in high school who are dysregulated and showing it through obvious um, disruptive behaviour in classrooms, school truancing, acting out. Okay, these are the easy kids to see that where self-regulation is, is an issue. The harder kids to see are the internalisers. So they are maybe withdrawn, um, having maybe a few peer issues that aren't as obvious to the adult eye looking on, but they're not disruptive in class. Yeah. They're not causing teachers any real grief. And that is actually more likely to be... Uh, girls and boys, although both do internalise. And it's those children um, that I think we really need to support with self-regulation. One of the biggest problems with teen girls in our schools is the power of the peer group. And from what you're saying, I'm wondering if strong self-regulation could actually break that. It absolutely can, because if you've got strong self-regulation, you will be a little bit more resistant to those influences mm. around you. Even um, even the ability, we were talking about uh, inhibition or impulse control before, so even the ability to just delay a decision. So it appears as sort of, you know, trying to get you to do something yes. or say something, even if you can, even if you have enough skills just to, to delay the decision as to whether you're going to go along with that, that's going to create some thinking time. And that is a really strong self-regulation skill to be able to engage. And I imagine with, with, with the issues we've got with social media, that's a perfect example. Yes, being able to delay that immediate response of you've received something on that Facebook feed or that Twitter feed that's upsetting and horrible. Can you just delay a response yes. until you have thought about it? Can you, and then reached out to your co-regulation. So we are still, as adults and young people needing that co-regulation, who's the trusted adult that you talk to? you know, who's the peer that you trust and that you talk, talk to? What teacher about? can you go to? Absolutely. So are you too old as a teenager to learn good self-regulation if you've missed the boat when you're younger? No, never. Our, the human brain is just the most amazing, plastic, wonderful thing. And I would say um, to parents and teachers who are working with teenagers who are struggling with this, you know, we need to go back to the three sort of pillars of lifestyle, which we all help with self-regulation, which is sleep, as we've already talked about, diet and exercise. So getting young people moving um, in, a, in a coordinated fashion, you know, things like martial arts, yoga, Pilates, any kind of sport, um, playing music, all of those things. So that, so those three pillars 
um, and plus some of these curriculum approaches around positive education, goal setting, those sorts of things. So let's explore that a little bit because doing Pilates or exercise, eating and sleeping really comes at home. You're a teacher of year nine students today and you think better self-regulation might lead to better learning outcomes in your class. How might you pursue that? I've seen teachers do really great things that I think are helping with this. So when teachers support students to set themselves goals and then are checking in with students about how they're achieving and working on their goals, um, this is really a a self-regulation learning in motion kind of thing. And sometimes those goals might not be about... uh, you know, subject content, but they might be about becoming more organised in the morning. You know, teachers also talk um, with students about things like packing their bag the night before, um, Using the their list di- on the fridge. Yes, yes. <laughs> using using their diary. Yeah. How do you break up bigger tasks into smaller sections? How do you um, conflict? You know, resolve conflicts with peers. And a lot of this is help happening in development um, classes. What about the role of music for older students? Should every child in year five or six or seven play an instrument, for example? Oh, I would love that. Wouldn't that be utopia? But would it work? Would it help self-regulation at that point? I have no doubt. Yes. We already know from studies in America that uh, instrumental tuition given to the children with the poorest academic outcomes in the poorest areas uh, of America uh, two years of, of instrumental tuition improved their reading and numeracy scores. We don't have quite the evidence for self-regulation, but that's just because we haven't measured it yet. I'm quite sure that it would work. But are you saying if each child, all children played a musical instrument, let's say in year six, by the time they went into high school, there would be better organisation or better academic results as a result of playing the, the instrument? Both. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm almost certain of this. I'm quite certain of this. I think, I think um, we've got a fantastic instrumental music program in most jurisdictions in Australia, but particularly in Queensland, where children in years three and four, depending on the school, get the opportunity to take up an instrument. But one of the limitations of the way that we're doing that is often because there's limited places, we need to, the, the schools select in to the program, into the instrumental music program, those students who already have a great record of both academic results, homework and behaviour. So the children who are the most self-regulated already get the benefits of the musician advantage. Those potentially who need it most may miss out and that's a problem we need to address. What advice would you give to a parent who calls you worried about the behaviour of a child settling into high school? Would it be to have a private music lesson? If they can afford it and have the resources, absolutely. Or if not, what about joining a community choir? Drumming circles, free drumming circles happen in the community uh, regularly. So anything like that and, of course, going looking at sleep diet and exercise. Could a teacher who doesn't have access to a program like that in the school bring it into the classroom in a in a more simple way? 
Yes, absolutely. So I've developed some resources that are freely available online, mostly for early childhood teachers, but these can be easily adapted. And in fact, some of them were so challenging for the for the young people that we worked with at four years of age. I think they'd probably, you know, be more appropriate for, for um, young people in high school. So things like, you know, pencils tapping on desks don't, uh, aren't that aren't that noisy, actually, Um, but could be a great thing, some simple rhythmic drumming activities at the start of a lesson. Um, And there's lots of ideas online, and we're working more and more to develop these skills in teachers. What type of music or what instrument is best, or does it matter? No, it doesn't matter because what happens when you learn music is that you are engaging so many different regions of the brain that then become much better connected. Um, interestingly, though, some some findings do say that uh, drummers or percussionists who arguably kind of move in the most complicated rhythmic ways of all musicians, they get this amazing, um, you know, brain architecture happening. But all, all musicians do as well. So, so you know, when we tell our daughters don't date, don't date a drummer, you know, we might be having to miss out on some of the some of the smartest people around. <laughs> I'm going to hold off on that one just yet. You know, we've we've heard of the link between music and maths and music and language, but this seems to be a whole new area. It is a whole new area and there's a lot of international calls for us to address this and at QUT we're really trying to lead some of this um, cutting edge work internationally in early childhood. Yeah, I think both of us are in awe of what teachers do in the classroom every day, but do they know how important their role is in actually building self-regulation and well-being in their students, do you think? I think we're beginning to. I think we really are beginning to. Certainly in early childhood, we've seen this language enter the dialogue much more in the last sort of five years than it has ever been in the past. Um, as we as we move up through the school years, you know, teacher, teachers are under more and more pressure to get content delivered. And, and of course, the expectations by then is that children have learnt to self-regulate. And in a perfect world, this would be the case. But um, I think what teachers do need to know and remember is is that young people learn to self-regulate through trusted relationships. So the better that um, teachers of children of any age can build a relationship with their children. I mean, know your learners is 101 of teaching and all teachers know that. When they know their learners, they have positive regard, sort of regardless of any of the behaviours or difficult things that students bring to the table. These relationships and the supportive way they speak with students and getting to know them is really going to help with the self-regulation development. If a teacher's listening and wants to take that first step to increasing the self-regulation of their students, what would it be? Contacting the parents, introducing it into the curriculum, how? Talk me through this. It's uh, self-regulation development, you know, it's it's multi-systemic, I guess. It, it crosses all areas of children's lives. I think um, teachers can get to know their learners very well. They can model self-regulatory behaviours, but also that self-talk. So saying to students, okay, what I'm thinking now is this is this getting really tricky and we might need a little break from this. You know, let's have a 
let's have a mind break and we'll come back to it. And these are strategies that maybe maybe students can think, oh, I, you know, I can use that at I can use that at home when things are getting tough, or trying different ways. Um, letting students move regularly is actually really important. So having our bodies still for too long at any age is not great for our self-regulation. So are there ways we can bring movement breaks um, into classrooms of all ages? Are there ways we can bring um, the outdoors and natural light and rhythmic uh, play and a playful attitude to learning as well. We've seen many workplaces move to to us standing at a desk at, for parts of the day. Is is that recommended? It might support self-regulation. I think many people do that because of the it's not great for us to be sitting for so long. But I think if, um, you know, some people need to jiggle while they learn and jiggle while they work. And unfortunately, in classrooms, sometimes we stifle this movement. And but we need to find ways, I think, where it can be present without disrupting other learners. If we don't deal with self-regulation as toddlers and in the early years, and again, as teenage years, what does a lack of self-regulation look like in an adult? So you would see a poorly regulated adult perhaps having issues with things like gambling, alcohol use, drug use. You might see them um, taking risk, more risky behaviours, speeding ticket after speeding ticket, for example. You might see them struggling with their relationships with other, other adults and, all the, and the children in their lives. You might see them struggling to stay in one workplace for very long because that poor self-regulation means when there's conflict, you know, or, or difficult work colleagues, they really struggle to sort of persist and work through that. Kate, a fascinating chat. Is there a message you'd like to actually leave us all with? Self-regulation underlies everything for children and adults. So let's really focus on it with our learning goals and let's consider the role of active music participation in our lives to do this. Moving moving rhythmically, dancing, singing in a local choir, picking up an instrument, tapping pencils on tables. Does the flute have to be one of them? No, it's the recorder. Oh, look, <laughs> I, I, I know as the recorder has a bad name, but it is learning a music instrument, so let's Indeed do it. Indeed it is. <laughs> Dr Kate Williams, thank you. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about this topic, be sure to check the show notes where you'll find links that can take you through to rich sources of information and inspiration. Podclass is brought to you by the QUT Faculty of Education. If you'd like to keep learning, QUT offers a range of professional development and postgraduate study options. QUT, because the more you learn, the more they learn.